broadcasting before and probably after the rapture. It's the Drew Marshall Show. Little James Taylor in the background. You've got to have James today. Uh, we watched him perform yesterday at uh, one of the many ceremonies that were going on, celebrating the 50-year anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, but today on our show, uh, returning again, is Vincent Bugliosi. Of course, he joined us a little while ago to discuss his infamous book, Helter Skelter, and the world uh, reimagined the tragic events of 50 years ago. Mr. Bugliosi has agreed to join us once again to discuss his book entitled Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Mr. Bugliosi, thank you again for your time. Well, I'm always happy to be on your show, Drew. What a week you must have had. How many interviews and gigs did you have? uh, A great number. Uh, Yesterday uh, alone, I was on Tom Brokaw's uh, NBC special last night, also on a uh, history uh, special, not history, uh, the History Channel Channel. special. I was on that. Also, I was on the uh, CNN special, so... Uh, and then during the day, I was doing interviews all over the country. So it's finally over with now. Well, I'm sorry to to be uh, you know the guy at the no, end. No, no, I'm you know. always happy to be interviewed by you too. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. Well, listen, let's let's get into it. We don't want to waste time here. Reclaiming history. I mean, as far as I understand, this book came as a result of being asked to take part in a television show whereby you prosecuted Lee Harvey Oswald. True. Yeah, uh, that was way back in 1986. London Weekend Television uh, convinced me to be a part of the show, and at first I said no, but then when I found out what they were planning, I uh, eagerly uh, uh, signed up on it. Uh, uh, the great defense attorney, Jerry Spence, uh, do you know who he is, Drew? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, he defended Oswald, and uh, the trial was in uh, London. We had the original Warren Commission witnesses. Now, you might wonder how in the heck they did that, because these people for 25 years have been shutting doors in people's faces and uh, talking about the media and hanging up the telephone, but they were promised a week in London at the Savoy for themselves and and, and their wives or girlfriends or, or what have you. So they convinced the original Warren Commission witnesses to testify. We had a regular federal judge. A regular federal jury chosen from the jury rolls of the Dallas Federal District Court. We were on uh, on film for 21 hours, and the the main thing that convinced me to do this is that uh, there's no script. Uh, they said, "Vince, your yellow pad will be your your script." So, as Time Magazine said, it was as close to a real trial as the accused assassin of President Kennedy would ever have. And uh, I worked on it for about five months, uh, seven days a week, and uh, uh, Spence said the same thing that I did, that we prepared for it uh, as much as for any other murder case uh, in our respective careers. So that was back in 86, and when I got into this and saw that the conspiracy theorists were guilty of the precise things that they claimed the Warren Commission was guilty of, uh, bias, distorting the evidence and suppressing the truth. I found out that it was they who were guilty of these things, but that they had succeeded in convincing the majority of Americans uh, of the truth uh, uh, of their propaganda. So that's when I decided to do the book. It's become the book of my uh, career. 
my uh, magnum opus. I worked on it for 20 years. It's uh, 1,600 pages plus 1,000 pages uh, uh, on a CD. With all my other books, Drew, uh, in, in, including, I've had three, up, uh, they got up to number one in the New York Times, including Helter Skelter, which is the biggest selling true crime book in publishing history, In Cold Blood is number two. Whenever I'd go on a show like yours, Drew, I would never praise uh, my book. I just felt it was uh, indelicate to do so. All I would do is tell the listener what my book was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't do that with Reclaiming History. No. I have to make a se- an exception, and I'll tell you why. If I don't point out how special this book is, they, people could think very easily that it's just one of another of the thousand books on the Kennedy assassination, and it's not. It's a very uh, special book. Uh, reviewer after reviewer has called it the definitive book on the assassination, and uh, many have gone beyond that and said it's the final word. And Those are powerful words when you're discussing a subject that's the most controversial subject uh, in American history. Here, here's a quote from the United Kingdom. Uh, you're up in Canada, right? I, I've been told, yes. <laughs> well, here, here's a quote, quote from the London Daily Telegraph. Reclaiming history is the final word on the Kennedy assassination. It sets out to recapture the assassination from the conspiracy theorists and succeed so triumphantly that the that only the most demented reader could doubt its conclusions. Uh, so, as I say, I'm uh, boasting about the book because if I don't, people could think this is just another of the thousand books on the assassination. It's not. It's a very special book. Okay, on the line with Vincent Bugliosi, uh we have oh, just... Can I tell you, I am actually sick of reading and looking and watching and listening of stuff having to do with yesterday's events. Well, of course, of course. Well, and, and I was asked uh, this morning, someone said, well, what, what conclusion have you come to? The <laughs> conclusion I came to was, I don't care anymore. Uh, be, be, because, because here's the thing, it is... Now, please don't take this the wrong way, no, and no. this might be just sort of a wimpy Canadian middle-of-the-road middle, middle of the road, uh, approach to take, but Mr. Bugliosi, as an outsider, yeah. you, I just don't know. I just don't know. Now, I lean more towards Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is that. Um, yep. uh, so I, I, that means I lean more towards what you said and what the, what the, uh, uh, the Warren Commission has said, et cetera. But here's the thing. Your mindset going into this was to disprove all theories against your client because that's what if I hired you to defend me or to prosecute someone who wronged me I would expect you to have that approach and that means you are looking for all angles that go against you know the opposition yeah I'm a little bit different uh, in in the sense in the sense that uh, when I left the DA's office I had opportunities to defend a lot of very bad people that would have given me a name as a defense attorney and I can tell you and I can even name some of the cases I I turned them down I didn't want to try to defend the very people I used to send um, uh, uh, to death row Hmm. so I uh, I retreated into writing if I had an opportunity to prosecute a guilty person of murder, or the opposite, which is uh, it's not really the opposite because you're fighting for justice, to defend an innocent person charged with murder uh, as opposed to writing a book 
about either of those two situations, it wouldn't even be a question. I'd okay. go into court. Okay. I'd, go, I'd go into court. But uh, very, very few people charged with murder are innocent. Uh, I think I found one, and I wrote a, a number one New York Times best-selling uh, uh, book on it. It's called And the Sea Will Tell. Mm-hmm. It's a double murder that took place on a deserted island in the South Pacific. And uh, there was the guy, the fugitive uh, uh, from justice, and his girlfriend, uh, who was my client, and two people were murdered on the island. I'm not going to go into the whole story, no, no, no. but yeah. anyway, he was found guilty, and she was found not guilty. In that case, I was satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that she was innocent, but not beyond all doubt. At one point in the book, I said, if the dogs could only talk, there were two dogs on the island. Right. So there's no way for me to know for sure. I may, I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. I'm a little different. I'm not putting myself up on a, on a pedestal. But uh, the most important man in, in, in life, of course, is, is, is the man in the mirror. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that I could uh, uh, really sell myself yeah. out and, 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 and be a prostitute. Or, or, yeah, or, for, or fool the man in the mirror. All right, so along the way, did you discover anything uh, uh, that made you work harder at disproving at least one conspiracy theory? Um, that would have shown Mr. Oswald to not have been the only person involved. Was there one thing, one thing along the way that made you work a little harder at at uh, at uh, defending that, I guess, or attacking? Uh, are you talking about the trial? Yeah, I am. I'm talking about your your work and the trial. History. No, I'm talking about the trial because there you were in this trial for the television show, and that was all part of this work that had been recorded in Reclaiming History. And you were your job was to prosecute Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Uh, so was there something, anything that you uncovered? along the way in doing that trial that made you work harder to disprove at least one of the conspiracy theories that would have shown Oswald was the only one involved. Okay, let, let, let me tell you something that, that you wouldn't know uh, unless I told you. The issue before the jury was not whether or not there was a conspiracy, although Spence raised that issue, and I did try to knock it down, but that was not the issue. The only issue was was Oswald guilty or not guilty. Right. And that's the way it would have been in real life, because if this had been a prosecution by the uh, federal government, they would not have alleged that Oswald was a part of conspiracy. Why? Because they believe that Oswald acted alone. Right. So why would they have a count of the indictment saying that there was a conspiracy? That would be saying that other people worked uh, uh, with him. Right. So although he raised the issue in London, and I knocked it down, it was one of these weird situations where that legally it was not relevant to the indictment, but it was relevant to the issue of Oswald's guilt. Why? Because if the jury felt, even though the only issue is, was Oswald guilty or not, if they felt that, let's say, the mob or CIA was involved, that would have diminished, sure. uh, weakened uh, their view that Oswald was even involved. So- because of that, 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 that makes the whole thing very, very murky. Uh, I'll tell you the only issue... Uh, that gave me pause. Uh, when I got on the case, I didn't know anything about the case. I mean, I knew that Kennedy had been shot, but just like the average American, I didn't know anything else. Uh, and I knew there was a man named Oswald who was charged and that he supposedly fired the shots from the book depository. The only thing that gave me pause, and I wanted to resolve it before I continued on, I had heard over and over again that the Warren Commission had... Um, uh, sealed the records for 75 years. And I, like many people, said, well, you know, if there's nothing to hide... Why seal it? 
why do they seal the records? Yeah, you yeah, follow? Yeah. Well, I found out that they did not seal uh, the records. When they came out with a report on September the 26, 1964, um, all documents that did not make it into the 26 accompanying volumes that accompanied uh, the Warren Report, mm -hmm. all of those documents, and there were many, a great number of reports and documents that were not a part of the 26 volumes, were sent over to the National Archives for safekeeping. I was fortunate to get a copy of the cover letter from Earl Warren, who, according to uh, mythology, sealed the records. Earl Warren seals the Warren Commission mm -hmm. records. And in that letter, he very clearly says that he hoped that the archives would, uh, I don't have the words right in front of me, but they're in the book, uh, I have the letter in the book, would, would uh, permit the fullest disclosure possible uh, of all of these records to the American public. Now, I have to go on and tell you that the records were sealed, but not by the Warren Commission. What it was is there was an old uh, National Archives uh, regulation or, or rule, I think it was called Instruction Number 5, that provided that when the archives got documents from a federal investigation uh, for safekeeping, they would seal them for 75 years, believed to be the normal lifespan uh, of a human being. And it all revolved almost exclu exclusively around uh, privacy, okay. uh, privacy rights. Now, let me add this now, and, and then we'll get on to other stuff. Okay, yeah, we're, we're running out of time, I, and you're, you're a gem, you're gold. I've got to get the good stuff here, man. Okay, well, <laughs> well, here's the thing. Because of the Freedom of Information Act and the JFK Act, that rule has been totally eviscerated. 99.9% .9 of, the, of the documents have been made available for inspection by the American public. Now, what about the one-tenth of 1%? One They're going to be released also in, in two years. However, I spoke to uh, Robert Blakey, the general counsel for the House Select Committee, and to Judge John Tonheim from the Assassination Record Review Board. They both told me that their staff, if we're talking about the one-tenth of one percent, looked at all of the documents, all of them, 100% of the documents, and there was no smoking gun there. Right. Right. Uh, the smoking gun doesn't even make any sense. If, if any group is bold and criminal enough to murder the President of the United States, they surely would be bold enough to retrieve any incriminating document and destroy it. That's okay. a long answer, but I'm telling you, that did bother me until I resolved it. We're on the phone with uh, Vincent Bugliosi, and uh, for all intents and purposes for this conversation today, he is a JFK assassination expert. And we've got a bunch of questions we've got to fly through quickly here. Secret Service agent Clint Hill has done the rounds this week. He's got the book out, uh, The First Lady and Me, or something like that. Jackie and right. Jackie and Me. And he was assigned, of course, to the First Lady. Now, he disagrees with the Warren Commission and has said that one shot hit the president, one shot hit Governor Conley, and the last shot was the fatal shot. And he says Nellie Conley, who was, of course, sitting beside Governor Conley, agrees with him on this information. But the Warren Commission concluded that one of the bullets strayed and hit a curb. Well, here, uh, here's what happened. And, and I can tell you that Hill and the victims would be probably the worst people in the world to tell you what happened. I mean, they're in a the car and all of a sudden shots are coming down 
how in the world could they? They're not thinking and and delineating between each shot. Uh, impossible. Someone watching actually would be a little better observer than the people that are getting hit, shot at, hit, hit by bullets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now let me tell you, uh, you can't just go by uh, uh, by one person. You have to look at the totality of the evidence. Three shots were fired. The first shot missed. It would take me too long to get into the issue of why that shot missed. If you want me to, no, I will. No, no, that's okay. Okay. The second shot entered the upper right back of the president, exited the front of his throat. Uh, he may have survived that, according to the doctors at uh, Parkland Hospital. And then the third shot entered the upper right uh, uh, back of the president's head and exited. It was a five-and-a-half-inch in diameter uh, exit wound, uh, exited the right frontal portion of the president's uh, head, and that was the fatal wound. Now, let me tell you what you're talking about here about, uh, basically, you're talking about the magic bullet, uh, the single bullet theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Do we have time to explain that? Just real quick, yeah, it's quite concisely (laughs) as you can, please. (laughs) I know, that's a hard thing to ask. okay, Okay, look, look. The, what the conspiracy theorists do, and it's just one of their deliberate distortions of the official record, they place Connolly in the, in the presidential limousine directly in front uh, of Kennedy. And he was, more, he was more to the left. Yeah, he was seated in the jump seat directly uh, to the left. But if you put him in the front, like Oliver Stone did and all the rest, then a bullet passing on a straight line from right to left, a downward trajectory through soft tissue in Kennedy's body, after it exited Kennedy's body to hit Connolly, if you're to believe where where Connolly was, according to the to the uh, conspiracy theorists, the bullet would have had to make a right turn in midair and then make a left turn uh, to hit Connolly. Uh, but you see, Drew, if you start out with an erroneous premise, um, everything that follows makes a heck of a lot of sense. The only problem is that it's wrong. Uh, Connolly was not seated directly in front of Kennedy. He was seated to his left front. I have a photograph in the book that clearly shows that. And therefore, once the bullet exited the front of the president's body, it had to go and hit Connolly for the simple reason it had nowhere else to go. At the trial in London, Spence called Dr. Sirowak, the chief pathologist for the conspiracy community, to the witness stand to characterize that bullet. And he said, well, Mr. Spence... He said, uh, bullets don't make right and left turns in midair, not even in cartoons. Uh, it's a magic bullet. Uh, on cross-examination, I said, now, Dr. Weck, if this bullet uh, passed on a straight line through Kennedy's body, as you agree it did, but did not go on and hit Connolly, as you claim it did not, then why didn't it tear up the interior of the limousine or hit the driver or, or, or anything or anyone else? And he said, Mr. Bajosi, uh, I didn't conduct the investigation in this case. That's not a proper question to ask me. I said, now, wait a while, Dr. Wecht. It looks like you have your own magic bullet. <laughs> if it didn't go on and hit Connolly, if it did not tear up the interior of the limousine, if it did not hit the driver or anyone or anything else, uh, it must have zigzagged to the left. He said, no, it did not. I said, did it hop, skip, and jump over the car? And he said, no, it need not have done anything remarkable. I said to the uh, to the uh, doctor, then tell this jury, Dr. Weck, what happened to that bullet after it exited the front of the president's throat. He paused and he said, I don't know. So just, just one little yeah. final line, and then we'll go on to other stuff. Uh, if we're to believe the conspiracy theorists, after that bullet exited the front of the president's throat, it apparently vanished without a trace uh, into thin air. 
And, and the great irony here is that the conspiracy theorists have wrapped that magic bullet tag around the neck of the Warren Commission, very successfully, I might add, for 50 years. And if you look at their allegation, really it's only they who have a magic bullet. Okay, now in, in regards to the head snap, I've heard you say this. Uh, it, yes, when you're looking at the Zabruder film, unless you're looking at it frame by frame, you won't notice what you would notice if it was frame by frame, that it looks upon first view that the head, of course, snaps backwards, and of course that would suggest the shot was from the front and kind of uh, propelled the president's head backwards. But if you slow the film down and you go frame by frame, you'll see a forward motion first, and then uh, maybe it's involuntary muscle flex or whatever, I don't know, whatever, however the body responded, yet then the head goes back. Is that is that about right? You know the, you know the whole thing. You've got a very good grasp of this thing, and you just articulated exactly what happened. This was showed for the first time uh, on Geraldo Rivera's Goodnight America. It was a pirated copy of the Zapruder film in 1975. Millions of Americans saw that, and over the water cooler the next day, you know, they were talking, oh, this shot must have come from the grassy knoll, not from where Oswald was uh, uh, behind the president, because of that head snap to the rear. And Spence in London made the most of it. He showed that segment of the film three, four times to the jury. And I didn't object. I let him have his fun. And uh, he told the jury it looked like Babe Ruth had struck the president from the front with, with his bat, yep. forcing the president back. And he said, and Mr. Bugliosi, in, in his Wyoming uh, patois, Mr. Bugliosi is trying to convince you folks that what you saw with your very own eyes never even happened. Uh, and uh, if I didn't have an answer to that, I think the verdict would have been not guilty uh, in London. But like you say, if you show the individual frames of the film, which I did, I put them on the screen uh, uh, for the jury, at 3.12, the president's head is okay. 3.13, one-eighteenth of a second later, uh, the president's head in the head, you see the explosion, and in what direction is the head, president's head pushed, uh, like you said, Drew, it's pushed slightly forward 2.3 inches. So at the all-important moment of impact, the president's head is pushed forward, indicating a shot from the rear, not from the front, uh, which is the grassy you knoll. And then it frames uh, 3.14 to 3.21, you have that violent head snap to the rear. The House Select Committee on Assassination pathologists called it a neuromuscular reaction. Right. Nerve damage caused by the bullet entering the president's brain causes back muscles to tighten, which in turn causes head to be thrust uh, uh, backwards. One final little footnote here. 1967, ITEC Corporation put out a high-contrast photo of frame 313. That's what the head was, uh, president was hitting the head. And you see all of this terrible spray matter leaving the president's head at, at 313, and all of the spray matter is to the front, again, indicating a shot to the rear. Well, uh, not all the matter went to the front, because Jackie Kennedy got onto the back of the car, not to reach out to Clint Hill, but to retrieve a part of Mr. Kennedy's brain. Well, that's an allegation made by the uh, conspiracy theorists. Uh, there, there, there's no evidence of that. They asked Jackie about it, and she doesn't even remember, remember doing, doing it. it. No, but I think Clint Hill uh, said that's why that's why she did that. And of course, he was the gentleman on the back of yeah. the uh, of the yeah. motorcade, the car there. All right, final little thing. By the way, um, you're probably not aware of this, but up next, uh, we're actually going to speak with Paul Landis. Do you know that name at all? 
Paul, yeah, uh, tell me what I... I that's I, all right. Paul, was, uh, he's a retired Secret Service agent who was assigned to uh, Jackie along with Clint, with Mr. Hill, yeah. and he was on riding in the car behind. Okay, yeah, yeah. And well, he was on... He's in my book. Everything's in my book. Yeah. You have to know that. Yeah. Uh, but he, he, is, he is very, very rarely told his story, and he has graciously uh, agreed to, uh, to well, come on good. and share. Because you've got a key person here. Yeah, yeah. So, but, 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 but again, they can't know. They're, they're in the... No. They're in the, in the motorcade and all of a sudden shots are coming down i get it i get it let's here's the final thing the cats and back memo of course there's been much made about that our listeners may not know what this is but at that point in time the then deputy attorney general because bobby of course was you know uh, needing to kind of take a break there came out with this memo it's important that all of the facts surrounding president kennedy's assassination be made public in a way which will satisfy people in the united states and abroad that all the facts have been told and that a statement to this effect uh, be made now the public must be satisfied that oswald was the assassin that he had no confederates who are still at large and that evidence was such that he would have been convicted at trial speculation about oswald's motivation ought to be cut off unfortunately the facts on oswald seem about too pat uh, too obvious marxist cuba russia wife etc we need something to head off public speculation or congressional hearings of the wrong sort that sounds like he's saying in one side of my brain sounds like he's saying look, we need to make sure that, that the public believes something that's not true. And the other part of my brain says, it, it, he, he's saying, the public needs to not be waffling about in this. We need to be sure about what we're doing, and uh, that will help the public rest uh, in this whole thing. Yeah, I, I would say, and, and he later agreed, uh, it was written uh, uh, in a loose way, but uh, here, here's the way uh, that I read this, because it's consistent with everything else. He and Hoover and everyone else was convinced that Oswald was guilty, uh, believed that very, very, very strongly, and yet the American people were thinking there was a conspiracy. So if you look at this from the standpoint that he was very confident and knew that Oswald was guilty, then it doesn't sound uh, incriminating at all. If you don't start out with that proposition, then it starts out looking like he wanted to convince the American public of something that they didn't believe was the truth. Hmm. He believed that Oswald killed Kennedy and acted alone. This is a very simple case. Within hours of the shooting in Dealey Plaza, Dallas law enforcement, the PD, the sheriff's office, local office of the FBI, knew, not thought, knew that Oswald killed Kennedy. And within a short period of time thereafter, a day or so, when they found out his background and uh, what a complete nut he was, they were satisfied beyond all reasonable doubt that he acted alone. So here you have the mindset of Katzenbach and and uh, and, and, uh, and Hoover and the whole pe- the group that was working on this. That of course Oswald was guilty. Of course he acted alone. And yet the American public is yeah. thinking the opposite. So we have to convince them. But yeah. the way he wrote it could be interpreted the wrong way, as you pointed out. That's right. No. Well, listen. Fifty years of unceasing fanatical obsession. I think, in my estimation, boils down to. The fact that how in the world can one nut job have assassinated the president of the United States? This and and I would say glorified man, uh, you know, wasn't just any president. You know, at that time he was the youngest. He was, you know, he had all the vim and vigor and the and the uh, the charisma, etc. How could one loser have killed the most powerful man in the world? There must be a conspiracy. Oh yeah, that, so, that's anyway. the way um, that's the way millions felt. I mean, it's a gloriously uh, bright fall day. Uh, the president's in the limousine with. Uh, 
with his lovely wife riding. They were smiling yeah. and waving to the crowd. And a second later, it's all over. over with. And there was this sense, uh, visceral, not logical, there is a sense that something more just has to be involved. Yeah. But nothing more had to be involved. Uh, bullets are very democratic. Uh, they kill or injure whomever they hit, and it doesn't take anyone special or important to pull the trigger. Yeah. Uh, let me just mention this one thing, and my guess is that you may not know this. When the Warren Commission came out with their report, September 26, 1964, the majority of Americans accepted the findings of the uh, Warren Commission, 55%, that uh, uh, Oswald shot Kennedy and acted alone. Only 31%, which is millions of people, of course, thought that there was a conspiracy. But then through the years, through their torrent of books, radio and TV talk shows, movies, college lectures, uh, uh, college lectures the shrill voice of the conspiracy theorists finally penetrated the consciousness of the American people and convinced the majority of Americans, as it is today, that Oswald was either a member of a high-level conspiracy or just some patsy who was framed by an elaborate group of conspirators ranging from uh, anti-Castro Cuban exiles to organized crime working in league uh, with U.S. intelligence. But please know that originally the majority of Americans uh, did not accept the notion of a conspiracy. Now they do. Goebbels, the propaganda minister of, thir of the Third Reich, said that if you push something at someone long enough, eventually they're going to start buying it, particularly if they're not exposed to any contrary view. And for 50 years, all we've heard was conspiracy propaganda. There's a thousand books on the assassination. Ninety-five percent are pro-conspiracy books. And, Drew, eventually that has taken its toll. Yeah, well said. Vincent Bugliosi, of course, author of Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and indeed an expert on this day. Uh, Mr. Bugliosi, again, our pleasure. Always a pleasure to be interviewed by Drew. You do your homework, and you ask great questions. You're a tough cross-examiner, but I enjoyed it. Well, it's better than a tough cross-dresser. That's right. <laughs> All right. Okay, Drew. Thank you, sir. Take care. Take care. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a listen to this clip. This was live radio coverage of the moment, the moment uh, President Kennedy was shot. Minutes before he arrived at the trademark. I was on Simmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way towards the trademark. It, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by. Just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is... Well, if that doesn't send shivers up your spine, I don't know what will. When we come back from a very, very short break... Paul Landis, retired Secret Service agent who was assigned to President Kennedy's detail that day and was in the, uh, in the car right behind President Kennedy as he was shot. Stay with us. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. You don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. 